good morning. It's good to be here today, and I'm uh, privileged to get the opportunity to share the Word of God with you today. Uh, my name is Mike Morrison. For those of you who don't know me, I uh, have the privilege of serving on staff, working with the Young Adults Ministry. I enjoy that very much, and from time to time I get the opportunity to teach Scripture here, and I, uh, anytime I get the chance to do this, I always am just very thankful that I get paid. I get my job is to actually get to dig into these scriptures and pay attention to them closely, try to seek to apply them to my own heart, as I prayerfully discern maybe what the Lord might want to share with all of us. So let's just uh, pray as we open up this time together. God, we thank you so much for who you are. Uh, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can open up the scriptures and see you. Lord, I thank you for this church, that this is a church that cares about the authority of your scriptures. Lord, I ask that you can help us to be people who are willing to submit to that authority. And even as we open up the word today and see the things you have to reveal to us, help us to have softened hearts, just eager attitudes to uh, apply these things and to obey them. Lord, we want to be obedient people. We know that that's what you're pleased with. The word says that you desire obedience and not sacrifice, not outward acts of worship or devotion, but an inward heart-rooted obedience. Help that to be the case for me. Help that to be the case for all of us. Just give us a, a vision of what it means to love you more, to love each other more, to love your church more, and to see your kingdom advance. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing on in our sermon series that we're calling Remembering Your Life. Remembering is a play on words there. Don't know if you caught it. There's something that's actually happening there. It's not talking about just calling to mind things. Literally, remembering. Uh, the subtitle says, making wholeness out of scattered fragments. So literally, remembering, putting the limbs of a fragmented body back together. And uh, we've loosely connected this, this series to the biblical concept of Sabbath. We've talked about that in the past couple messages. But really, the, the larger principle at work, of course, is rest. So not just Sabbath in a biblical sense and in a historical, contextual sense, but what does it mean to rest Christianly? How do we view rest? How do we understand that? How do we, how do we uh, conceive of its importance in the Christian life? So that's the thing that we're sort of talking about. And there's much for us to learn as, as New Covenant, New Testament Christians about rest, even though the ways that we apply and understand Sabbath are, are really quite different and quite unique in our situation. There's a lot that we can still learn about rest. And the, the biblical passages that we're going to look at today have some very important stuff to show us about rest, but it's a different sort of rest that they point to. Uh, it's, it's, we'll see that as we go through it. It's, it's not rest how we would commonly understand it. It's not rest that's immediately experienced in the here and now necessarily. And just because th this way of understanding rest is different, it doesn't mean it's impractical. Very important to understand. It doesn't mean that it's not utterly foundational. It doesn't mean that it's not important to apply this to our life in our, in our everyday life in a very real way. So let's dive into this. We have a lot of uh, stuff to look at, but we're going we're gonna to do it in sections. We're going to make it kind of new. Usually I read through a big, huge chunk and we kind of fall asleep and then we don't really remember where we're at, but we're going to go through sections. So I'm going to try to make it a little bit easier. So if you flip to Hebrews 3, that's where we're starting off at. Hebrews 3, and we're going to be starting at verse 7. If you can find that, I think we'll have the text on the screen. We'll just go 7 through 11 for now. That's the, our gracious offering that we have for now. 
Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's a pretty stern, terse uh, passage that's happening here. So a few things. First of all, this, this sermon is entitled, I think it's on the bulletins, this sermon is entitled, The Promise of Rest. Implying this future orientation. The promise of rest. But to be fair to the text that we're looking at today, the, the title really should be, The Promise of Rest and the Warning of Not Entering into It. Because that really is what's going on here. Yes, there's certainly this magnificent promise of entering this Sabbath rest for the people of God. This huge, gigantic, beautiful concept of Sabbath rest for the people of God. But there's also a serious warning in this text and in other passages in the book of Hebrews. There's also a serious warning of, if you do such and such, you aren't going to enter it. You aren't. It's a very serious Stern warning that's no joke, really, at all. You're not going to enter into it. And then he doesn't flip it around and then kind of offer this word of comfort and say, actually, no, you probably will. Don't really sweat about it. It's saying, no, like, really, you aren't going to if you persist in this sort of way. So there's, there's, there's this flip side to it, the promise of rest and the warning of not entering into it. Uh, this, this semester, I've been teaching the book of Hebrews out of Bethany College, and I'm uh, teaching a course Sunday mornings in the Lifetime class corresponding to it as well. And this, this is one of the, the trademarks of the, of the book of Hebrews that comes up a lot. And we've talked about this before in my class at Bethany. It's these warning passages. This is something that Hebrews is known for. These warning passages that you frequently see. The author will say things like, Don't harden your heart, lest you fall away from the living God. Or how can we escape if we neglect this great salvation? Or see to it that you don't refuse the one who is speaking to you, because if they didn't escape, much less will we. These warning passages come up frequently, and a lot of scholars and theologians have kind of debated about how to interpret them and how to understand them, but they're heavy, they're serious. That's something that's, that's pretty undisputed. It's, it's something that the author is very clearly trying to do. He's trying to warn. That's the purpose of a warning passage. So the author makes these grave, really grave, warnings often, and the whole context in which these warnings come is this gigantic argument about the greatness of Jesus and the supremacy of who he is. The supremacy of the Son of God. This is what Hebrews 1 and 2 and 3 are all about. It's how he launches into this whole thing. And so just to sum it up, the idea is, if things like disobedience, hardness of heart, willful ignorance, if these things were serious in the sight of God when he spoke through the angels, when he spoke through prophets, when he spoke through Moses, How much more serious are these things when God speaks by his Son, who is the radiance of his being and the exact imprint of his nature? And this is incredibly interesting. It's incredibly interesting that this is the way he frames the argument. Because we're so used to thinking, okay, old covenant to new covenant. Old covenant to new covenant means, it means freedom from the law, it means grace, it means complete forgiveness, and it does. It absolutely means those things. But sometimes we turn that sort of thinking into, okay, the new covenant actually means, you know, less obligation. 
less moral restriction, less overall seriousness, in a sense. They were so intense and and really grave in the Old Testament. Now it's just, it's, it's a lot more just kind of chill. We often think this way, and we're good at making a biblical case for thinking this way. We can appeal to some of our favorite Pauline texts to kind of say that this, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's kind of not a big deal anymore. So how incredibly interesting is it that the author of Hebrews is saying, no, you know what? The fact that God has now revealed himself and he's revealed salvation to us in this final, definitive way means that you had better take it seriously. Like, it's an interesting thing. It's a convicting thing. You had better take Jesus seriously, is his point. That he comes back to again and again. It's not less seriousness. It's more. It's exponentially more. Because of the nature of who Jesus is. If these things were significant in this circumstance, how much more so is the case now? That's how we argue this frequently. Now, we need to be careful here because I do not mean, and I want you to understand this, I do not mean more seriousness in terms of attitude or disposition or demeanor in the spiritual life. That's not the point. It's not like this means that the new covenant entails less joy, less freedom, less life. That's that's not at all the point. That's not the point of, of what the author is saying either. Rather, the author is talking about seriousness in terms of one's response to Jesus. How one responds to Jesus is a serious thing. There's no two ways about it. That's what he's trying to make clear. In other words, to willfully refuse Jesus is to refuse salvation on the terms God is offering it. To willfully harden your heart to Jesus is to harden your heart to the only hope you have. For eternal life, for salvation, for eternal rest. This is the author's serious concern, and he makes this point in verses uh, 7 through 11 that we just looked at by quoting Psalm 95 and applying it to this situation. So he's quoting this, this, this psalm, this Old Testament scripture, and he says, Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion where your fathers put me to the test. In other words, don't be like the Exodus generation. Don't be like the Exodus generation who were so close to setting foot in the promised land, who had every reason to believe that God would and could make good on his promise. God could and would provide what he promised, but they hardened their hearts. Don't be like them. You're in a similar situation, don't be like them. Don't let that outcome happen to you. So how how did they harden their hearts? What's Psalm 95? What's, the, what's this passage referring to when we, when we look at it? How do they harden their hearts? Well, if you read the book of Exodus, if you read the book of Numbers, especially it shows up. A lot of places in the first five books of the Old Testament, they harden their hearts through grumbling. Through things like complaining. Through constantly flirting with an attitude of unbelief. Think about that. Flirting with an attitude of unbelief. You see that all the time. And again, there's every reason. They see miracles. They see mighty things. They see a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. Every reason to believe that God's going to make good on his promise. And they flirt with this attitude again and again of unbelief. Maybe he's not going to actually do it. Maybe it would be better if we went back to Egypt. There's this attitude that's constantly recurring there. So sure, maybe somewhere in the back of their minds there was a sense that God would perhaps make good on his promise. You know, maybe, maybe there's kind of a a belief there in the sense of a a mental assent to something. They agreed that God could maybe do it. 
But the point is that they'd spent so much time toying with unbelief that their hearts had become hardened to the voice of God as a result. Couldn't hear him anymore. Couldn't believe him anymore. Because of toying with this unbelief. And now the author of Hebrews is, is, is taking this psalm about the Exodus generation and he's applying it to his argument about the supremacy of Jesus. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts if you're seeing what God is offering in Christ. Now, why does the author care about this so much? Why does, why does he make such a big deal about hardening of the heart? Well, because, quite literally, hardening one's heart puts one in mortal danger. Well, that's a little intense. Mortal danger. It's not a phrase that we like to use on a nice Sunday morning. Hardening one's heart puts one in mortal danger. I, I don't think it's too intense. And I don't think that the author of Hebrews would say it's too intense. Because here's the thing. Hardening one's heart, and, and we need to know this too, just so we don't take this the wrong way. Hardening one's heart here doesn't refer to making a mistake and repenting. Hardening one's heart doesn't refer to just messing up in general, struggling against sin. Hardening one's heart doesn't refer to those who are, who are struggling, however fitfully, getting knocked down, getting back up again. They're struggling to walk the path that Jesus walked. That's not what it's referring to. What it's talking about is a willful, fully aware rejection of Jesus and his commands. Willful, intentional, aware, cognizant of what you're actually doing when you do this. So even still, even when I say it that way, even still you might be thinking, well, come on, we all do things that we know are wrong. We all do things that we, that we get are disobedient. We're fully aware that they're disobedient, but it's not that serious. We do them anyway. That's not too big of a deal, right? And I think, if, if we're consistent with this, and if we're consistent with, to what the Word of God is saying here, yeah, it is serious. It's incredibly serious. It's not a joke to be entirely aware that you're re- rejecting the voice of Jesus and going forward with it anyway. And understand, it's not serious, and, and, and this is important too, it's not serious, it's not such a heavy thing, because mercy and forgiveness aren't readily available for anyone who repents and turns to Christ. That's not a question. We need to be very clear about that. That's not what makes it so serious. He'll never reject a broken and contrite heart that turns to him. Full stop. We know that for a fact. Rather, what makes a willful rejection of Jesus a very serious thing is this. If you reject Jesus' call to obedience today, what makes you think that you'll accept his call to repentance tomorrow? Just think about that. Fully aware, fully aware of what you're doing, reject Jesus' call to obedience today. What makes you think that you're going to be able to accept his call to repentance tomorrow? Both obedience and repentance are things that Christ calls us to. They're commands. We're commanded to do both of those things. So what gives you the confidence to think that you can train your heart to reject the one and accept the other whenever you want to? Why should that be the case? And it just reminds us, we truly are masters of self-deception, us sinners. We're very good at tricking ourselves into believing that, no, that kind of makes sense. We can do that. We can pull that off. We're pretty good at what we do. We like to trick ourselves into thinking that. It doesn't make sense, though. It makes no sense whatsoever. We trick ourselves into thinking it. That a constant, intentional rejection of Jesus' command to obedience will have zero effect on our desire to obey Jesus' command to repent. 
There's no correlation, we think. It doesn't really matter. Live however I want, disobey whenever and however I want, but I'll just repent when I want to. I'll get around to it eventually. That's not how habits work. It's not how the heart works. I think that's the point of what he's saying here about hardening the heart. That's not how hearts work. You harden your heart again and again. What makes you think that you can just make it soft at your own free will? Now, very important, thanks be to God that Jesus is incredibly merciful beyond what we can ever understand. And he often rattles us awake despite our best efforts to sleep. Despite our best efforts to ignore him, he shakes us awake. Thank goodness that he does. But the serious nature of the thing still stands. So think, think about times in your life or, or, lives, uh, or times in the lives of people that you know uh, where there's been serious backsliding. Okay, there's been a serious hardening of the heart against Jesus. Maybe to the point of turning away from Christ altogether. Maybe to the point of living in such a way that does not at all comport with, with Christ's commands. So think about that. And then just let me ask, did that happen all at once? Did that happen all at once, or did it start somewhere? Did it start with the rejecting of Jesus and a small matter of obedience, which made it easier and easier to reject him in another larger and larger and larger matter of obedience? And notice, notice in this text, this this Hebrews text that we're looking at, it starts with today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. The point is that this is not something that should be neglected. Don't put it off. Don't delay. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. While I was preparing for this, it, it, it really reminded me very vividly of a, of a situation I was involved in with a friend of mine. I remember I had a friend uh, that I was walking through some stuff with. He, he once had this very vibrant faith, a real love for the Lord. You know, displayed all the signs of being every bit as much of a Christian as anybody else that you would ever know. But he'd gotten to this point where he was making some really awful decisions in his life that were leading him down some very dark paths, and, and not just minor things at all, you know, like not just typical stuff that you hear that young people in North America do, not that sort of stuff, uh, stuff that was seriously certain to devastate his future, and a lot of people around him, and it was going to have very lasting, impacting consequences, and, and, and myself and, and other people that I knew, we would try to talk to him, try to connect with him, try to, try to point him to Jesus and the gospel, We'd very intentionally try to do this, but he was a different person entirely than the guy that we knew before. Responded to things in a different way. Didn't really connect to the dots and some of the things that he used to really easily. And the darkest part about the whole thing was that he had this confident presumption that one day he'd get around to dealing with Jesus. In the midst of this willful, intentional disobedience, he's just, I'm going to get around to it eventually. I'll come back to Jesus one day. He was entirely aware that he was grieving the heart of God deeply. Like, and, and that was the, the, the scary thing about it. You talk to him about stuff and he was aware. He knew he was breaking the heart of God. His heart was very calloused. He didn't care how he was hurting the people around him. But yeah, of course, he'd get back to the whole Jesus thing eventually at some point. And the only thing, like after, after a long time, the only thing I felt I could say to this guy was, listen, if you still have any desire to obey Jesus. If you still have any softness of heart toward him, please follow it now. 
And it was just this urgent warning of, please, just follow through with that now if you have any sense of that. And with this particular story, it didn't turn out so good. But that's all you can say in that situation if you have any sensitivity towards Jesus. Please, listen to it now. Don't, don't tell me you're going to get around to it one day. And this is something that I'm trying to learn to preach to my own heart every day, and this is something that I'd like to challenge all of us with. What steps of obedience are you certain that Jesus is calling you toward? If you're able to discern that those steps are indeed of God, obey. Obey now. Obey today. Don't harden your heart. Cultivate a soft heart by obedience. Pray for a soft heart that's quick to repent. Because we are a stiff-necked people, and we, we do often harden our hearts. But pray for a soft heart that's quick to repent. If we follow through the rest of our, our passage in, in Hebrews 3 here, we'll see that a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about is just foreshadowing of what the author was going to say anyway. So let's look in... Uh, Chapter 3 again, verses 12 through 14. So he's coming out of quoting this psalm. He's coming out of quoting this psalm, and then he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Evil, unbelieving hearts aren't simply some sort of mere nuisance. They're not just a minor irritant that is bound to show up. They lead to falling away from the living God. The living God. He uses that term to describe that he's the source of life. No life apart from the living God. And an evil, unbelieving heart leads you to fall away from that. Death, in other words. So what do we do? We take care, is what he says. Take care. The word is literally look out. Be on the lookout. Be looking for this stuff. Be aware. Be cognizant that this can happen. In you, among you. This can happen. And as an antidote against it happening, he says, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A beautiful passage. Exhort one another. Encourage one another every day. To not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin carries with it both the power to deceive and the power to harden. The power to deceive and the power to harden. And so the believing community, those who have come to share in Christ, need to exhort and encourage one another against this hardening and deception. For the remainder of of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, the author then develops this comparison to the Exodus generation by saying, look, you know, disobedience and unbelief, it meant for the Exodus generation that they didn't enter God's rest of the promised land. They didn't enter into God's rest of the promised land, but there's also a fuller, deeper rest that similarly isn't entered into as a result of unbelief. Or else why would David write Psalm 95 hundreds of years later after the promised land was already being lived in? So this is me kind of summarizing because he he goes on to explain this and it's kind of complex the way that he puts it. But this is what he's saying. Why would David be writing Psalm 95 urging, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts because you're not going to enter into his rest otherwise. Why would he be saying that if they're already in the promised land? Why would he be writing that? Why is that an important psalm to write? Is it just a little piece of nostalgia? A little work of history? 
That's not the point. The author goes on to say, because there's a fuller rest that needs to be entered into. This is something that is still applicable today. It's a living word to us. And like I mentioned, he says today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Why would this be a living, present command if the rest promised was already fully experienced? We're already in this rest. Why is there this urging to not harden your heart? Because it's not. It's not fully experienced yet. It's something that's yet to be entered into. And then if you look at uh, verse, or sorry, chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, so that's, that's kind of the explanation of what's happening in the intervening space. If you hop ahead to ver- uh, chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, you see him conclude this section of the argument, but the supremacy of Christ, the softening of the heart, not the warning not to harden the heart. He concludes the argument in this way, and I think we might have these words on the screen, I'm not sure. He says this, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the way he concludes this, this bit of the argument. For the word of God is living and active. What's going on here? There's a, you know, there's a poster on your bedroom wall. The word of God is living and active. And there's a picture of a huge King James Bible beside it. You know, this is one of the few passages in the book of Hebrews that you can kind of pull out and enjoy it as a quote. I think I wrote it on my skateboard when I was a kid. I thought it was pretty cool. But the word of God is living and active. Why is he making this argument and then all of a sudden he's saying, you know, this little proof text about the authority of Scripture, this bit about the Bible. Well, it's not about the Bible, is it? We're paying attention to what he's saying. He's not talking about the Bible here. Remember, Hebrews contains this big argument throughout about the supremacy of the salvation revealed, the word spoken by God in Jesus. The significance of this word spoken by God in Jesus. Jesus reveals God entirely. That's what Hebrews 1 is all about. The first verses of Hebrews 1, that's what it's all about. So what's his point then? Why is he saying this? Well, his point is to say, let us strive for the faithfulness, the obedience, the softness of heart that leads us to keep the faith until we enter God's ultimate rest. Knowing full well that God in Christ sees all, knows every thought, knows every motive, penetrates through every pretense, and he's the one to whom we're all going to have to give an account anyway. Cultivate that softness of heart, knowing that these things are laid bare before Christ. He's the one that is going to see all this stuff on the day of judgment anyway. He's the one before whom all things are plainly seen in here and now, not just on that day. He says it as a present reality. He's the one before whom all things are plainly seen. Whether it's our hearts that we've trained in callousness and disobedience, or our hearts in which we've tried to cultivate a softness that is eager to respond to Jesus with obedience. He sees both. He knows what sort of heart we have. He sees it all. He gets it all. There's no motive or intention that you'll ever have that he doesn't get entirely. Or to put it another way, it's all going to be laid before him ultimately anyway, so don't harden your heart in the meantime. Most uh, New Testament scholars who've done work on the book of Hebrews, they, they agree that there's kind of a unique genre that this book falls into. It's not a typical epistle. It's not a typical letter that, you know, Paul had written to, to a specific church or group of churches. There's something else going on. 
And most scholars agree that Hebrews is actually a well-written sermon. That's its genre. So in all the commentaries, they, they often won't even say the, the author says this. They'll say the preacher then goes on to say this. It's a preacher crafting a sermon. So right now, what we're doing, this is actually a sermon about a sermon. Or there's a sermon about bits of a sermon. That's what we're doing here. And so I think, in light of that, it's fitting to make sure that our main point of this sermon aligns with the main point of this bit of the Hebrews sermon. We don't need to pull a rabbit out of a hat to kind of understand what the main point is here. So just a few things in conclusion. First, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Is Jesus clearly calling you to take certain steps of obedience? Is Jesus clearly calling you to repentance in a particular area? Is Jesus clearly calling you to reconcile with another person? Is Jesus clearly calling you to say yes to him because really you haven't said yes to him in a long time? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Second, let us be a people who constantly cultivate our own hearts towards softness. This is a prayer of mine often these days. Let us us constantly be people who are cultivating soft hearts in ourselves and among each other, too. Let's be aware that a calloused heart is a mortally dangerous thing. It's not an indifferent matter. It's not something that might not have very serious consequences, because it will. It's not taken care of. Let's be aware a calloused heart is a dangerous thing. Let's figure out the patterns in our life that seem to lead us to this sort of place of having a soft heart. Third, let's figure out ways to encourage and exhort one another against the deceitfulness of sin, just like this text says. And man, this is, this is a powerful thing. When you surround yourself with people, when, when you become the kind of person to another person, that, where there's just, a, there's just an environment of encouragement, exhortation, happening frequently, and people who have experienced, they, they know the beauty of that. It's such a beautiful thing. And it's not just about, hey, you're struggling with sin, you shouldn't do that. It's not just about that. It's just encouragement. Encouragement towards, you know what, we're fighting a battle. We're in a spiritual battle. The scriptures are very clear about that. And it's just coming alongside somebody to say that I'm in this together with you. And like that, you know, that can kind of sound corny, but it's a really encouraging thing for anybody who's experienced that before. To just get a, a word of blessing out of the blue. To say, I support you in, you in your battle to stand firm for Christ. I support you in your struggle against sin. I support you in whatever way you're trying to follow in Christ's footsteps. Super powerful thing. And fourth and finally, and just this is one sentence, let's be eager for the rest of heaven. Let's set our sights there, and let's recognize that that's where our citizenship truly lies. Pray together. Jesus, all things are laid bare before you. And if we, if we grasp the significance of that, that's, that's both a frightening thing and a comforting thing. It's frightening because we like to try to believe that we can keep things dark, and hidden, and secret. It's a comforting thing because we know that you're the one before whom all things are laid bare, yet you still love us more deeply than we can ever possibly understand or imagine. How that works together, we don't understand. Lord, let us feel that. Let us know that. Let us understand just how incredibly deeply loved we are by you. 
So God, just the, the repeated refrain of this text of today, if we hear your voice, don't harden your heart. Let that be something that we obey. Let that be something that I obey. For those of us here today who really need to hear that specifically, for those of us who have very clear places where we know your son is leading us, help us to have softened hearts to obey now. Not put it off, not neglect, to not delay, but to trust that we want to cultivate that softness of heart by obedience. Lord, let us strive to enter that rest. That rest that truly only is ours if we remain firm in our faith until the end. That's exactly what this text says. Let us strive to enter that rest. Encourage our hearts today, Lord, as we enter into this time of worship. Help us to just lay our hearts bare before you to understand what it means that we're so loved by this one who who knows everything about us. Encourage us today, Lord. Let us see more of your face. In Christ's name.